came back after the rant to end all rants and possibly the world. You actually came back. I can't believe it. I doubted that podcast episode. I doubted it because that passage is so difficult. We want to talk more about that, but save it for the next episode. A retrospective on Canto 19, a corker of a Canto in Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and I suppose I should have said that all along. And this is Walking with Dante, the only podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Inferno, Canto 19, as I'm sure you could tell. We're at the very back of it, lines 118 through 133. We have come through so much territory, it's almost impossible to summarize this Canto. We're in the third pouch of the eighth circle of fraud. These are the Simoniacs, the people who have sold religious offices for money. And apparently, these are popes, all stuck upside down in holes in the ground. And our program has had conversations with one pope, in particular, Nicholas III. And now we're at the end of the canto. Lines 118 through 133 of Canto 19 of Inferno. The whole time I sang these notes to him, whether he was chomped by anger or conscience, he kicked out both his feet as hard as he could. I truly believe my leader was pleased with me because he gave me a look with such contented lips when he heard the sound of the true words so expressed. Because of that, he wrapped both of his arms around me and when he'd lifted me tight against his chest, he went back up the path he'd come down. He didn't wear out from holding me so close so that he took me up to the summit of the arch that traverses from the fourth to the fifth dike. Here he carefully set down his burden so gently because of the steep rough ridge that would have been a hard road even for goats. And there another valley opened up before me. It feels like the canto rounds out, comes to a distinct period, and ends. It's part of the curious positioning of this canto in Inferno, but this is actually a fairly easy passage. Just a couple little things to note, and so let's do it to finish off Canto 19. This passage starts out the whole time I sang these notes to him, and I think we are here to know that the speech that Dante gave, the, as I called it, rant to end all rants and possibly the world, is the very essence of poetry. Remember, at the start of that giant rant from our pilgrim, he talked about the folly of using these metrics, a poetic word, meter, and now we come out of it and we talk about singing these notes in this passage. So that whole rant is surrounded by musicality, and especially in a medieval mindset, musicality is poetry. They are connected as art forms. They are connected as uh, ways of linguistic expression. As you know, of course, poetry has rhythm. Music has rhythm. Poetry often uses an elaborate language in the same way that music uses an elaborate language, both in texts and in notes. They are connected together, especially in medieval poetics. And I think we're not supposed to miss that what has just happened here, this giant rant in which the pilgrim rose up on his righteous high horse and condemned the corrupt papacy is the very height, the sine qua non, of Dantean poetics. This is what Dante will want to eventually become, that is, 
the prophet poet. That last rant was a prophetic statement, a denunciation of corruption in the world in the mold of Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Zechariah, especially Zechariah, that apocalyptic language all recast into prophetic discourse about the corruption of the world. That, I think, is the heart of the Dantean poetic project, which leads me again to think that Canto 19 is inserted here into Inferno. I don't have any direct proof for that. You realize, of course, that that is supposition on my part. However, this self-conscious notation of poetics, both before and after that rant, and the way the rant itself ramps up into righteousness, all of that strikes me as very much part of the kind of language that goes on toward the end of Purgatorio and the beginning of Paradiso, and, well, all the way out actually through the end of Paradiso. It's also one of the reasons, and we're going to talk more about this next time, people are put off by Purgatorio and all of Paradiso, but we'll talk more about that in our retrospective on 19. Let's just say now that that giant apocalyptic speech is bracketed by musical notation or poetic notation. And I think that Dante is letting us know that this is the very heart of his poetics. I don't think that Dante knows this is the heart of his poetics as he's first writing Inferno, probably in the first decade of the 1300s. This is a mission that comes on him slowly. And yes, over the course of time, we can see our poet become a prophet as he goes forward in comedy. But it's whole cloth, beautifully woven, the full tapestry right here in 19. It's going to back off in 20, 21, 22. And we're going to go back to the slow development of the pilgrim into the poet, into the prophet. But again, this seems to me a rationale for why this canto is interpolated from later on into this spot in Inferno. Let's pass on to the passage. I truly believe my leader was pleased with me because he gave me a look with such contented lips. It's not quite a smile, but it's definitely a lip movement on Virgil's part. And I think that we should take that for exactly what it is. That is that Virgil is well pleased by what has happened, and especially by that giant rant to end all rants. When he heard the sound of the true words, and again, it's important to look at those words true words here in this passage. When Virgil hears the sound of the true words, they stand in some kind of opposition to the ornate words that Virgil is either accused of or complimented for using over the course of Inferno. We've been over and over that territory of polished words and Virgil, and given the vulgarity of the passage that we pass through and the way that the rant ends up in some really rough language, they are truer words, that is, not polished words, but from the gut. And because of all of that, Virgil wraps his arms around the pilgrim, picks him up, lifts him tight against his chest, and goes back up to the top of the embankment. I think that this is really important here to just stop and look at the word held me tight against his chest. When Virgil carried the pilgrim down the embankment, he carried him on his hip, la sua anca, on his hip, on, his, on the side of him. This time he carries him against his chest back up. And I think that difference is crucial. First of all, 
when you carry something on your hip, it's the way you carry a baby or someone lighter. You put them against your hip. You, you know this, right? Even if you don't have kids, you put them against your hip and walk along. Every parent knows this of switching the hip out. It's a signal of someone lighter, more immature, perhaps. The second way here, Virgil's arms wrapped around the pilgrim, tight against the chest. This is an embrace. This is much more intimate. And I think that it's important to watch that development in 19, that the pilgrim and Virgil move from (laughs) hip placement to chest placement. That movement indicates growing intimacy, a growing acceptance, a tighter embrace. It's definitely more if in intimate. If I had grabbed you by my arms and held you against my chest, it would be quite an intimate move. And then did that to carry you up a slope, my gosh, we would be face to face. We would be very close to each other. Why is that here? And why is that important? Well, my answer to that is that Dante is finally carrying on the Aeneid in the ways that Virgil couldn't. Let me just back up and explain that. If you think about the Aeneid from Dante's perspective, the Aeneid is this epic, tragic epic, but epic about the founding of Rome. Virgil gets as far as he can get, the Aeneid is unfinished, but also as far as he can get because he's a pagan. He doesn't actually know why it's important that Rome be founded and why it needs a godly imprimatur on it. All he knows is that the gods are involved in the founding of Rome. Along comes this Christian and explains it, says Rome is founded so that the papacy can land in Rome, so that the church can land in Rome, so that the church can carry on its mission. Now, Remember, at this moment, the church is very much in danger of leaving Rome. And by the time 19, Canto 19, is interpolated into Inferno, it may well have already left Rome for Avignon. So there's a whole way in which the Roman problem is complicated. But Dante sees comedy partly as finishing the work of the Aeneid. The Aeneid explains the founding of Rome from honorable Trojans who escaped the destruction of those dastardly Greeks, made it across to the Italian peninsula, and founded this great civilization. But Virgil doesn't really know why. And why is this civilization founded? In order to promote Christianity. And that's the key for Dante. And so, when Virgil hears this grand pronouncement about the corruption of Rome, he himself is pleased that the epic work of the Aeneid is continuing into the poem comedy. That's the way I read this entire journey, and certainly the way I read this passage and the intimate embrace between the pilgrim and his poetic master. They get to the top of the dike, and there may be one more little glitch in the passage to explain. At the top, the passage goes on, he carefully set down his burden, that is Virgil set Dante down, the pilgrim down, so gently because of the steep refuge that would have been a hard road even for goats. And there another valley opened up before me. Before we pass out of Canto 19, 
Just look at that word goats. Many commentators have noted it that at the end of this denunciation of the papacy, we have a reference to goats. And when Jesus talks about the last judgment, it is the separation of the sheep, that is the saved or those who follow Jesus, and the goats, that is those bound for hell. And so that there is a goat reference here brings up one final passing glance at the last judgment, according to many a commentator. And I should also note that that word goats is most likely she-goats, female goats. And if it is female goats, then it's an even bigger slap. Not only are the popes damned in the second judgment separation of the sheep and goats, they're also feminized, which you know in a medieval context is a huge slur. Please do not at me. Don't come at me in any way. I don't think that it's right to use feminization as a slur. <laughs> I'm telling you what I think is going on inside the medieval text. Let us stand outside the text and say, no, bad. Don't. It's, it's no slam to be a woman. Inside this text, however, if these are she-goats, in fact, as we can translate it, then it is a slam on the male popes to call them female in a medieval context. It is a further condemnation of them, one last passing backhanded slap before we leave the canto and another valley opens up before us. But before we get to that valley, we're going to have a retrospective of Canto 19. So subscribe to this podcast. Come back next time. I want to go through some of the salient points and some of the larger issues that arise from Canto 19. Come back next time. One more episode on 19. It really deserves several episodes. Someone wrote me the other day an email and said that basically they wrote their dissertation on Inferno Canto 19. Indeed, one could and much, much more. So join me next time. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.